This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people in politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with Susie Loftus, a candidate for district attorney. She's a longtime prosecutor and a former police commission president who's currently working as legal counsel in the sheriff's office. We're talking today about what she'd do to address the city's biggest problems, including untreated mental illness on our streets, open-air drug dealing, and the blame game between law enforcement agencies. She's also got some good tips for where to go for a great steak burrito and a stiff drink. I'll be right back with Susie Loftus. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Susie Loftus, it's good to see you today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. Well, first, I thought we would do a little getting to know you session, if you can kind of give your biography in two minutes or less. Where are you from? Where did sure. you go to school? What do you do now? Yeah. So I'm from San Francisco. Um, I was born here. My mom came to this country when she was 19. So she was born in England of Irish parents uh -huh. and came to this country. Uh, I just think now, like, the bravery that was involved in a 19-year-old leaving everything she knew and coming to this country. So she married my dad and uh, became a naturalized citizen in 1970. So She met him here? She did. Wow. She met him in New York, not mm -hmm. in San Francisco. But they came here in the 70s. And I say this about my mom because I think it's important uh, that she's the best American that I know, and she wasn't born here. Uh-huh. Um, but she definitely raised my sister and I in San Francisco to be very civic-minded, um, to care about the community, to stand up for folks. So um, there's one great story about my mom. I know this is supposed to be about me, but it's— <laughs> Is your uh, mom running for district attorney? <laughs> my mom should run for many things, but no, she's not going to run for district attorney. But um, I think it's central to sort of the the, the choices that I've made mm -hmm. and how I got here is um, when I was in fourth grade at a school, public school in San Francisco, um, I— because my mom told me, you know, contribute and do all this. I signed up to be a um, work in the in the school office to help uh -huh. people if they like skin their knee or whatever. And if you were a girl, they called you a nurse, and if you were a boy, they called you a medic. Wow! And we did exactly the same job. And so I thought that was really strange. And I came home and talked to my mom, who again is not from this country and uh, didn't know the ins and outs. And the very next day, she sort of stormed into the principal's office and said, "Like I don't understand. They're doing the same thing. Why are girls called something which, you know, mm -hmm. is different and, and arguably less. And mm -hmm. so um, the solution 
solution there was everyone got called a nurse. <laughs> so <laughs> um, girls should have been called medics. I agree. I agree. But that was back in 1984 and not where we are now. But so um, who I am is I was raised by someone who said, stand up and fight if you think something is is wrong. And um, I put myself through Santa Clara University. Mm-hmm. Um I spent a few years organizing across the country. Uh, I worked for labor unions and uh, progressive causes. And then um, I decided to go to law school. Uh, I put myself through USF Law School. Mm -hmm. And um, while I was in law school, um, I heard of this woman, amazing woman of color, who people thought had a future. And I ended up being an intern at the city attorney's office. And I met someone named Kamala Harris. And she talked a lot about the role of the prosecutor being the only person in court who stood up for justice Mm -hmm. and had an obligation to do what was right, and that too often people who care about um, justice identify as defense attorneys and that you can do so much good as a prosecutor. So I completed my uh, law school career, had my first daughter, um, the break between my second and third year of law school. And I was sworn in as a prosecutor on her first birthday, um, wow. and I held her in my arms. So I've been a prosecutor. Uh, I did that at the DA's office, uh, focusing on elder abuse, domestic violence, firearms cases. And then I went to the attorney general's office uh, when Kamala Harris was elected district att- uh, attorney general. Rather, I was one of two lawyers she brought with her. Mm-hmm. And um, from that vantage point, I certainly saw a different perspective on our approach and decided that if we wanted to build safety, we had to start a lot earlier and with communities impacted. So I built a center for kids exposed to violence in Bayview Hunters Point with our now Surgeon General, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, mm-hmm. um, and really believe that if we're going to get to safety, we've got to address root causes much earlier and in a much more effective way. Mm-hmm. And then Mayor Ed Lee appointed me to the police commission, and I did some important work reforming the department. Um, and now I work as a lawyer in the sheriff's department. Mm-hmm. So I've had what I think is a, about a 15-year a graduate level study of um, sometimes the dysfunction of the mm-hmm. criminal justice system. And I'm running for DA because I know we can do better. Uh, and I know that approach and experience is one of the things that we don't always think about that can be the game changer. We need someone who is grounded in San Francisco, cares about this community, and is more committed to solving problems than making excuses. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a widespread agreement among the four candidates that the criminal justice system in San Francisco isn't working very well. Would you put um, the blame on the DA's office currently or across the board or what exactly do you think is going wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think part of what I'm hearing, because I've been in living rooms for the last year, I announced my candidacy last September. What I'm hearing is that people living in the city feel like the the everyone is putting too much blame on everyone and not focused enough on solving problems. So mm-hmm. I would say that leadership isn't about finding someone who's at fault. It's about being committed to solving the problems. And what is happening is those impacted by crime feel left behind, ignored, whether it's your car is getting broken into, whether it's there's a shooting outside of your house mm-hmm. and you live in the mission, whether it's a sense that you don't feel safe walking your child to BART through the tenderloin, there's a sense across the board that we are not orienting our criminal justice system to the people who are impacted. And we want to minimize someone's experience. Um, Some of my opponents, including, you know, someone who's representative of the public defender's office, talks a lot about victimless crimes. And some people minimize um, quality of life crimes. And I think what we have to do is recognize that we have more in common than we realize. Mm -hmm. We want to have a safe city. 
we want to have a city where we can raise our families and all of our kids can thrive. And we have to be honest about where we're failing, but not put all the premium on who's to blame and roll up our sleeves and start tackling these issues as one city. Mm-hmm. The recent assault by a mentally ill homeless man of a woman near the Embarcadero has gotten a lot of attention, in large part because the crime was captured in a horrifying video. Is that an example to you of a broken system, and what should have happened differently in that case? First of all, that attack never should have happened in the first place. I mean, this is a system failure on multiple levels, and it's consistent with what women have, particularly women, have been telling me for the last year, which is they don't feel safe in our city. And it's not isolated to people who live in a secure building, but the reality is we got to watch this woman fight for her life. Um, in a way that was so shocking and terrifying. And to then see that um, the person was immediately released with no plan to deal with the root cause of the violence was like the canary in the coal mine, Mm -hmm. right? And I think um, I've put together this Monday, we're having a conversation on women's safety and gender-based violence at Manny's because so many women from monolingual Spanish-speaking women in the Tenderloin to formerly incarcerated women who are living in SOMA they're all saying, we don't feel safe. We're not sure who does feel safe. And we don't believe that these systems are all accountable. And I think the difference here, what needed to happen was twofold. One, we should do everything we can to prevent violence. And when you've got a man who is saying that he's seeing robots and trying to save her from robots, whether it's a meth-induced psychosis or struggling with mental illness, it stands to reason that someone in the neighborhood And he touched one of our systems. And my platform as DA is really based in neighborhood prosecutors have to be partners with communities to identify what tools we have in our toolbox, but what would be better solved by the Department of Public Health? Where do we need Department of Public Works to bring in a light? Sometimes what a community needs is is more light, Mm -hmm. which can address safety. We have to solve these problems together. And I think on the front end, we didn't prevent this from happening. This man was dealing with something and he shouldn't have been able to uh, be in that level of distress and then cause that violence. And and then on the back end, accountability-wise, I have stood in court and argued against the release of many individuals. And what I find is the courts expect the people's representative, which is the prosecutor, to lay out all the evidence. And I ordered the transcript immediately because I wanted to know what happened in Mm -hmm. court. And what I observed was not only did the video not get turned over, but there was no reference to the video. Mm -hmm. And um, the victim's experience was never even brought into the courtroom. And that's the job of the prosecutor. Except to say that she wasn't injured, which was strange. Right. And to say, I think the language was when the judge asked about the injury, the prosecutor said, well, give me a moment for a quick perusal. Which I think, you know, look, arraignments happen fast, but you take your time. And what I have said is, if you find yourself in a situation where a judge is about to make a release decision that goes against the risk assessment tool, which is Mm -hmm. something that that office is really invested in, if it's going that way, you need to know that as the prosecutor, it's your job to stand up for the community Mm -hmm. and to articulate the danger of that person being released and to come up with a plan. And what we saw in that transcript is, you know, and this is not to malign this particular individual. It's a system failure. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't have the tools he needed to make the best argument. And no supervisor was brought down. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, 
working and prosecuting cases in San Francisco is the judges rely on being able to trust the prosecutor in court to be accurate, to be thorough, so that they can do their best job. And I think it's really damaging the blame game that has happened a lot over the last eight years Mm -hmm. of whose fault is it. And what I want to get back to as the DA is I want to run a world-class law office with great prosecutors who are well-trained, who have the support they need to do what is a very difficult job. And we've got a lot of work to do there. Mm -hmm. A large percentage of people in jail in San Francisco are mentally ill, and um, oftentimes that's the first place they get treatment at all. What would you do to ensure they get diverted into programs that help them and also keep the public safe, especially for those with a history of violence? Yeah, so there's um, there's a real problem when our jail is the largest provider of mental health services. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not uncommon, but when I tell that to people across our city, they're really shocked. And you've done, you've reported on this a lot. We've got a $12.3 billion budget. And yet what we're essentially saying is we're going to wait until you pick up a felony and then we're going to get you your psych meds. The whole conversation around conservatorship exposed also a real decrease in those acute psych beds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's 44 at General Hospital. Mm-hmm. Half as many as there were Half as many. a decade ago. And a third as many subacute beds. Um, so, you know, th- we want to think about these problems like they just happened overnight. But I think we have to take a broad view at the crisis and say in 2008, with an economic downturn, um, we'd stopped investing in treatment beds for people who are mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And then we want to sort of clutch our pearls and be mm-hmm. shocked when folks are not getting the treatment they need. And then what's happening? They're decompensating. Mm-hmm. And some of them, not all, because we shouldn't pathologize everyone who struggles with mental illness. That's important. But some of them are doing what is predictable, which is acting out and acting violent. And that's not okay. It's not tolerated. Mm -hmm. So, but what we know is what we're currently doing is waiting for violent acts to happen. And then folks are in jail. They are in jail if it's in a violent act. Sometimes for some folks are able to stabilize and get on their meds. Um, Behavioral health court is a great model, but it's really small. Mm -hmm. And some of the folks, once they get stable, they're waiting an extra hundred days because there's no bed outside. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is recognize that mental illness is chronic and relapsing. Right. There's not a there's not a one silver bullet solution. But if we don't invest earlier, like my work with kids in the Bayview, we have very predictable outcomes. And that's where we are now. Mm -hmm. So my solution is I will be a district attorney who constantly tells the people of San Francisco that my commitment is to building safety. And that's how we invest. And we have to invest a lot earlier in mental health treatment community-based mental health treatment, identifying folks once they do come in the system, getting the treatment that they need. When they're leaving our jail, what's the reentry process about keeping them on their meds, supportive housing? All of that requires collaboration and a commitment to solving the problem instead of having someone else to blame. Mm -hmm. So I think that we have some successful models, but I think a lot of it is about the city expanding treatment so that our jails are not our de facto mental health hospital. Would you support expanding the conservatorship program? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the city. We've had, um, I was just having a conversation with my two aunts. They're visiting to to help my mom with something. And they all grew up or didn't grow up but lived in the city in the 80s and the 90s. And the level of suffering that's happening on our streets, and a lot of guests on your podcast have talked about this, is at the worst that it's ever been. And so I think the idea of conservatorship is it's for people who are gravely disabled mm-hmm. and Um, That has been people suffering from serious mental illness, but also alcoholism, and now we've added drug addiction. And what grave disability really means is you're unable to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we all have an obligation to step in. And certainly there are 
civil liberties impacts to that. But what we're talking about is a population of folks who can't get themselves something to eat. They can't get Mm -hmm. themselves, they make the right decision to get shelter. And I think we need as a city to set up a process that um, recognizes that conservatorship is about getting somebody better. Um, It's not forever. And I think moving it over to the city attorney's office was really smart. And I I applaud the mayor and and everyone for doing that. Let's take this out of the criminal context and get people the help that they need. Mm -hmm. Um, a new report out of City Hall showed that San Francisco um, is conserving 50 percent fewer mm-hmm. people than it did just a few years ago. And it's much less likely to conserve someone for being gravely disabled than other counties. So um, under state law, that would be unable to provide for your food, shelter okay. or clothing. Mm-hmm. And San Francisco hardly ever does that, especially compared to the rates at which San Mateo and Marin and other counties do. Mm-hmm. Do you think we need to look at that criteria rather than just um, somebody who's homicidal or suicidal. Absolutely. And I really, what I commend in this is Supervisor Raphael Mandelman, who I'm honored to have his support, really asked for this deep deep dive report. And I think we need more of that Mm -hmm. before we start jumping in with what the solutions are. But what that report showed was city city employees are saying it's really the courts who have to make determinations around grave disability. And we need to make sure that we are pointing out that that is one of, that's actually what we're seeing on our streets is this idea that people aren't, aren't well, and mm-hmm. we know it. And so my 10-year-old could say, this is not what's supposed to be happening. And so to the extent to which that has been a hindrance, whether it's a, a sense of the civil liberties that are at stake or are the psychiatrists and people making a sufficient record about that piece, whatever the obstacle is, we're seeing it on the street and we need to identify that gap and fix it. And I think the approach that Supervisor Mandelman is taking is one that I respect deeply. It's collaborative. It's not about blaming, but it's about saying we cannot continue to have people struggling in this way on our Mm -hmm. streets. And how would you make progress on the scourge of open-air drug dealing, particularly in the Tenderloin and South of Market? You know, this is, uh, again, when I decided to uh, run for DA, I I spent a lot of time in the Tenderloin when I was on the police commission. So I had, you know, what I called listening sessions before I decided. And uh, one group that I spoke with was senior citizens who were living in SROs Mm -hmm. um, in the Tenderloin. And I remember one man who was in recovery himself talking to me and saying, look, you know, I'm in recovery. I don't use drugs anymore. But I'm I'm not as young as I used to be. And when I walk out of my door, there are drug dealers who offer me drugs. And he's like, I, I can get past that. He said, but when I say no, sometimes they'll push me. And he's like, I'm afraid of breaking my hip, mm. Susie. You know, and mm. um, that is there's a story about the impact of drug dealing and drug use that is just often never told. And there is this idea um, that certainly the war on drugs was a failure and we have to identify different approaches, but we also have to recognize that there are people impacted by this that never have a voice in this process. And so how do we balance that? For me, uh, I do support Supervisor Haney's approach to a task force in the Mm -hmm. Tenderloin. Um, I do share some of his concerns that the city has turned a blind eye to this for too long. And I think what we need to do is, um, you know, set boundaries about what is going to be acceptable and what's not. And part of that is Moms who are walking their kids to school, to BART, um, should not have to go through people using shooting up on the street, um, and they shouldn't have to pass a number of drug dealers. So the question is, what do we do? One, on the drug dealing side, there are some really great models of um, bringing in a practice where drug dealers are arrested, 
And then they're brought in to hear from a community panel about the impact of mm-hmm. what they're doing in their neighborhood, which I also think would be really important to people in the tenderloin mm-hmm. being heard. Mm-hmm. And then the idea is like, look, we can go down this predictable path where you get arrested, you get charged with a felony, and we're going to prove the case, and you'll be put on probation, and you'll continue on this path. Or you can choose after hearing the impact. We've got some opportunities for jobs. We've got some opportunities for apprenticeships. Um, I think what San Franciscans want is for us to try something different that might be more effective. And what people in the tenderloin have told me is like, Susie, when the sweeps happen and people come in and just sweep up all the drug dealers, the next day, it's another drug dealer who doesn't understand that we have kids going to school, who doesn't understand some of our community members and our ethos. So they're asking for us to try a different approach, and I'm committed to doing that with them. Um, That does say this is not tolerated, so you've got to make a different choice, but let's make sure that we're creating pathways for the folks who are dealing drugs because it's an economic issue. And then if they choose to keep doing it, then we do have the ability to prosecute them. And I I think that that's unfortunate if that's our only option, but that's what we'll pursue because Mm -hmm. we can't keep going with the same approach. When it comes to users, um, I think it's – I really support safe injection sites. I think that what we're doing isn't working currently. Um, our public health officials have raised a flag that we are at the back end of the fentanyl crisis, which means the rest of the country have de- has dealt with it. But our overdoses are going to um, go up significantly, as has been reported. So I believe in safe injection sites and treatment on demand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a public health issue, addiction. It's, again, it's chronic and relapsing. But – We do have to recognize that when it becomes a public safety issue, law enforcement can get involved on the back end, and I will partner with the Department of Public Health to address those issues and use the levers we have once all of the public health approaches have failed. But since no cities are opening safe injection sites, at least for the time being, uh, what would be your alternative in the meantime if someone is seen shooting up, you know, outside City Hall, as I've seen, what should happen? Yeah, I mean, I've had conversations both with the Department of Public Health, members of the community, and the police department, and it's still a crime, right? It's not a felony anymore, um, but it is still a crime. And I think in areas where there's rampant drug use, I think that uh, the first approach is to uh, tell someone, don't do it. We can arrest you. And if we can arrest you, we can take you to the CASC, which is a place where you can get treatment and services. But part of sometimes the approach is um, recognizing that it does continue to be a crime. And what we want to do is connect someone to treatment. We can do what that. Is oh, okay. It's the um it is the center that the that is run by the adult probation department. Mm-hmm. It is a place where anybody who has any justice involvement at all can get access to mental health treatment, drug um drug treatment, um, job counseling, resume building. It is um you should tour it. We yeah. should go we should go there. Um and this is a place where the police are able to bring someone when they're not going to arrest them and put them in jail. But mm-hmm. it is this idea of what's our intervening approach, which disrupts the behavior and gives someone access to making a different choice. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have not invested in that approach enough. And then when we have people who repeatedly are brought in for not making a different choice. We certainly can bundle those cases and bring them into the criminal justice system. What that will mean is the person goes to drug court, um, which is another opportunity uh, Mm -hmm. for someone to get treatment and get help. Um, And I think that we will, I, I will be prepared as district attorney to use the levers I have to incentivize it. Sometimes you hear we've got too much carrot and not enough stick. Yeah. So I think we do need to bring the stick and be really smart about when we use it, but recognize that most of this is a public health problem, which we do have to partner more effectively with the Department of Public Health. And that will be my approach because mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the solution. What did you make of the federal government's decision to ramp up its own enforcement of dealing in the tenderloin? And was that a signal to you that our city government isn't up to the task? 
Um, it was a signal to me that if we don't do something different, the federal government has um, talk about a big stick. Um, they have a really big stick and with a really big whack. And I think that, um, yeah, both of those are true. And I think that what that means is it's really an incentive for us to address the behavior and use the levers that we have to, to clean up the problem. Um, because we know that um, there are long sentences and mandatory minimums in the federal system. Um, and it's the same idea, right? I am very sympathetic to the U.S. attorney saying, my employees are walking through this and and it's not fair. They don't they don't feel safe. What is our plan? And I think it's a sign that the city didn't move uh, as collaboratively and as quickly as it could have. And then the federal government stepped in, which I think we want to avoid. Mm-hmm. Changing gears, uh, would you have charged the officers in the Mario Woods case? So, you know, what I said in, in all of these cases is, having been on the police commission for, for many years, what people are looking for in police cases are independent investigations. And I think a big problem that we've had in San Francisco is uh, we have the police department investigating itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, one thing that I have committed to is I want to bring in the California Department of Justice to investigate all officer-involved shootings. I don't believe the police should investigate themselves, um, number one. Number two, I think prosecuting police officers across the board is a specialized thing for a prosecutor to do. And I'm committed to having individual specialized prosecutors who prosecute cops from everything that they would do on on duty to off duty, including a DUI or Mm -hmm. a domestic violence case. And the third thing is I think we need to improve transparency and be much uh, far less opaque about our process. And I think in the Mario Woods case in particular, that was a case where you know, there's video evidence and we saw um, something that was awful. And in my role as a police commissioner, I what I focused on was saying, how could this have happened? How are we training our officers on use of force and what can we do differently? And that is the lever that you have as a commissioner. And we went through a process and changed the use of force laws and um, took on a big fight. And as a result, use of force has decreased by 30 percent by San Francisco officers, mm-hmm. and also really importantly, importantly, injuries to officers are down. So what I think we have to do in this conversation is look at what is the problem we're solving for. We want to have zero fatal officer-involved shootings. I like to say it this way. We want everyone to go home. Mm-hmm. Everyone. We care about everybody's safety. And unfortunately, we had a use-of-force policy that didn't make it clear that what we want to do is have time, distance, and de-escalation. And in the Mario Woods case, from the initial contact to when he was shot was less than two minutes. When he was shot, a sergeant was just arriving on the scene and getting out of the car. And so what we have found, looking at all the data, is that in about 85% of the cases, if you can get that initial contact to be more than five minutes um, and get a supervisor there immediately, you can really slow things down and save lives. And Mm -hmm. that's what I think people want. In this conversation, can there be does someone get charged with a crime if something happens um, is where the conversation goes. But I'm not going to second guess the DA's decision in that case. He did an exhaustive review and determined that there wasn't criminal liability. But too often we don't talk about what can we do. And I'm proud that in San Francisco, the people who stormed into City Hall and the people who demanded change got change. And it's become the basis for Shirley Weber's bill. Gavin just signed, or I shouldn't say Gavin, the governor. Mm -hmm. Um, All of us in San Francisco on a first-name basis with our (laughs) politicians. He signed it, and she said, look, this is based on the work that was done in San Francisco, which 
places like Sacramento and other places who deal with high-profile shootings, I think we created a roadmap of making sure you can hold officers accountable and take away their job if they don't follow the policy, um, even where you can't prosecute them criminally. There seems to be some confusion about what it means that San Francisco is a sanctuary city. As DA, how would you like to see the city handle undocumented immigrants who are arrested for serious crimes? So sanctuary city to me is something I deeply believe in. Uh, What sanctuary city is about, from my perspective, is essentially what does it take to keep us all safe? Local law enforcement's job is not to enforce federal immigration law. So it comes down to um, fundamentally a matter of jurisdiction. That's up to the feds. That's their job. They do their job. I do my job. What we've learned in the last 15 years, um, thanks to the advocacy of a number of incredible advocates, including my former colleague Angela Chan on the commission, people in the DV community, including Beverly Upton, is there's this crossover where immigration, federal immigration enforcement has a consequence locally because people can't tell the difference between the police who are federal and the police who are local. And so when it comes down to domestic violence incidents, if you are less likely to call the police, if you're undocumented, but you pause to call the police if your husband or partner is abusing you because mm-hmm. you're afraid of getting deported, you are in a, an increasingly more lethal situation. Same thing with public health. If someone needs a vaccine, and they are afraid to go to the hospital because they're going to be asked about their status, they're less likely to get that vaccine. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to be in school with, with, with our kids. So Sanctuary City is fundamentally, we're in this together. The federal government has to do their part. But as the local law enforcement official, I'm here to tell you, I want you to call the police when you need help. I want you to go to the hospital. It's not our concern. And what I have learned over time is, especially with my own experience, there are many people um, who have green cards, Many people in my family who've come to this country at different times, uh, undocumented individuals are actually less likely to commit crimes. So the demonization is something that I think is really problematic. All people can commit serious and violent crimes. And what we need to do is focus on that and hold them accountable for that. And too often, the federal immigration process became an end run to us doing our job and proving that they committed a serious violent act. So from my perspective, I have a problem with people committing serious and violent acts, and I want to hold them accountable using my levers in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where uh, we have been failing. Uh, certainly in some cases. And as a result, we say, well, on the back end, we can sort of uh, get this person out of here by using the federal immigration system. And I think what we have to recognize is that approach is really problematic because it makes people who we are in the charge of protecting less likely to cooperate with us. And that's how I see Sanctuary City. I think it's really important to fundamentally to our safety. There's been a rash of pedestrian deaths in the city this year. And despite the goal of a zero deaths through Vision Zero by 2024, we're actually going backwards and not on track to meet that goal at all. Do you see a role for the district attorney in that problem? I do. I put out a plan of how the district attorney can partner on Vision Zero. I was a big proponent of Vision Zero as a police commissioner. We had one month, I think it was December of 2013, where there were seven fatal traffic fatalities in one month. One was a six-year-old little girl in the Mm -hmm. tenderloin. And I think, look, if we had not started this process back then, I don't know what the numbers would be now. So we focused on 
what are the citations that are that are most dangerous and got the police to be much more data driven and uh, much giving out many more tickets, 54 percent increase in citations. I remember my husband actually getting a ticket on Gary Boulevard and saying, thank you, honey, for your advocacy. But <laughs> was there he was being sarcastic. Oh, yes. He's, he was being very <laughs> sarcastic. But in a way, he was also like, look, enforcement is a piece of creating safety and incentivizing better behavior. If you think you're going to get caught for some folks, they're more likely to stop all the way to stop sign, not make a red on a red. So we're at a place now where traffic fatalities are nearly outpacing homicides. And I don't think that's widely understood. So Mm -hmm. part of the role of the district attorney is to be someone who talks about what the real safety challenges are and uh, what's happening on our streets is a public safety crisis. And the people who are most impacted are our kids and our seniors. And um, so what do we need to do is treat a traffic fatality with the same level of scrutiny as any other any other fatality on our streets, um, any other homicide, what happened, what was the cause. Uh, one of my opponents has referred to these as accidents that don't we shouldn't use our resources on. Look, accident is a complete defense. Yes, to, yeah, it's a it's a it's a complete defense to any crime. So there's not, a, you know, you can't charge a case if it was an accident. But what we have done for too long is have this culture that sort of uh, doesn't realize law enforcement can investigate and then also uh, hold people accountable when they're driving in a way that's reckless that could lead to to a death. Uh, but more importantly, I think it's being a partner with the rest of the city on elevating this issue and making sure that we're doing everything we can on the engineering side and on the education side to keep our most vulnerable citizens and folks in our city safe. Mm-hmm. How would you grade the performance of District Attorney George Gascon? What has he done well and not well that you would do differently? Well, look, I challenged him. I got into this race because I wanted change. So I think that um, what he has done well is I think he has definitely um, brought forward the idea that reform is absolutely overdue. I think we definitely over relied on incarceration as our predominant public safety strategy. In the last 30 years, California built 21 prisons and one university. So I think he has um, been an important advocate for reform statewide. Um, I think he's done some uh, cutting edge approaches around restorative justice in our juvenile system, which are promising. And I look forward to those evaluations. I think the idea of bringing in alternative sentencing planners is smart. You know, we need to rely on people who are formerly incarcerated and um, and and people who have different shared experiences to help build sentences that are going to ensure the person doesn't reoffend, right? Because our recidivism rates are continue to be at seventy percent. So, someone gets arrested, goes to jail, and there's a seventy percent likelihood they're going to reoffend. So, I think he's brought some different thinking. What I got into this race to do is to make sure that all of this is grounded in our city, that this experience of people in our city and in all of these neighborhoods is what we care about and what we focus on. So I think reform makes us more safe, just like I think being a sanctuary city makes us more safe. But it's a series of conversations and work that we have to do with people who live here. And what I hear day in and day out is people don't feel like their experience matters, uh, whether they go to the police department and say, I want to report that my car was broken into and they get told nothing's going to happen. And they usually get told that it's the DA's fault. We have a system that across the board has stopped thinking it needs to work for the people who live here. Mm -hmm. And I, um, as a native and as someone who's raising my family here, um, I'm deeply committed to ensuring that the progress that we've made around reform also makes us more safe. Mm -hmm. And we need to do that with the people in this city and not sort of um, only in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And I understand there's a lot of turnover uh, for prosecutors in the office currently. Why is that happening? 
Well, I'll tell you that one of the one of the reasons I jumped into the race was I left in 2011, and you know that's a it was a very sought after job. It's it's an incredible honor. I mean, the people who do this work, I have to say, you know, they go to court, and it's this idea of a crime against one of us is a crime against all of us. Like these are people who are fighting for what they believe is right, and um, it's an honor to get in there and say, you know, Susie Loft is for the people. So when people start leaving a job like that, it's such a, a question mark. And so what I looked at was who was leaving. And sure, some people got promoted to be judge, um, but 75% of the over 80 lawyers who left um, were women, people of color, or members of the LGBTQ community. And so to me, that's a big problem because we're not going to have a, pr a progressive office um, if we don't have an office that represents the community. And I think that the reason people are leaving is um, they feel that there's a, a lack of leadership, a lack of um, clarity on what their role is. And I think many of them feel unsupported. I think they're looking for a DA who's been in court in San Francisco, and certainly that's yeah. me. They're looking for someone who can give them the help they need. And also, I, I, they're looking for a leader to redefine what it means to be a prosecutor. You know, we have an honorable job. This is an honorable job. They don't want to be demonized, um, but they do uh, are looking to uh, have a conversation about where we haven't done justice or where we haven't built safety. How can we do it differently? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm honored to have, you know, a lot of support of the people doing that work in that office. And I think they're very hopeful um, some good change will come as a result of this election. So what would you grade the current DA? You know, I'm not a teacher. I'm not trained on that. So I'm not going to give a letter grade. The other two who have come on so far gave, gave well, a grade. you know, <laughs> Heather, I'm a mom. Do you do this? Like, if my kid said, well, this other person's doing it, I'd say, you know, make a determination of whether that's right for you. So for me, look, I'm not in the business of giving him a letter grade. But I will say I got into this race because I have a different approach and mm -hmm. the status quo isn't working. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, even though you dodged me on that one, um, <laughs> our serious questions are over. And we enter the lightning round. Oh, so excited. It's my favorite part of this podcast. <laughs> Where's your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Okay. So uh, there's the West Side burrito spot, which is La Playa Taqueria mm -hmm. on Noriega between mm -hmm. 46 and 47th. This is a storied place because it is, the one, it is the one place where everyone in the Loftus family agrees and loves and can find something that they like. So it's just the great local taqueria, amazing staff, wonderful food. But in terms of like my old school roots, the the place in the mission that we always went to after my uncle's soccer games at Balboa is La Cumbre. Mm. La Cumbre on 16th and Valencia. Okay. It's been open forever. It's amazing. And um, what's your yeah. order? Steak. It's a steak burrito. Nice. Yeah. What's your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? So this is, um, can it be a Netflix movie? Sure. Okay. So this always be my maybe. Yeah, that was a good so one. good. I love Ali Wong. <laughs> Ali Wong is everything. Yes. So that's my legal opinion. <laughs> and it also just felt like so many, t so much San Francisco can be like the backdrop of movies. But I think it was also going back to her childhood mm -hmm. and she was a latchkey kid and I was a latchkey kid. The visuals they picked on the West Side, it just felt very like San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we had to go to, like, our favorite dumpling spot on Irving, which, of course, I can't remember the name of right now afterwards because it made me hungry. The food was such <laughs> a was central so character. Yes. Where do you like to go for a stiff drink? Okay. So uh, a stiff drink, definitely Original Joe's. Yeah. They make, like, the most ice-cold 
uh, martini in the world, and it's delicious. By the way, I can tell you you came prepared. <laughs> well, I listened to this podcast. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. In the beginning, before people were listening, the politicians would come in and like oh, freeze yeah. on everything. No, question. I know. <laughs> and they all seem so nervous. They're like, oh, my gosh, it's the lightning What's round. The right oh, <laughs> burritos. Uh, what was your first concert? Okay, so I did know that you were going to ask me this, and I had to phone a friend because I couldn't remember. Um, we have lifelines. Yeah, you know, I had a lifeline for real. Um, so my uh, my best friend um, from from childhood, Melita, reminded me that we went to see the MTV Live concert. Oh wow! And where was that? It featured some. Uh, it was in Sacramento. She knows the actual location, but um, Arco Arena, probably it was, or or Cal Expo, okay. one of those two. She knows. She's got yeah. it. Thank goodness she has a memory. Um, it featured some amazing artists, Heather, including Millie Vanilli <laughs> and Heather uh, and um, Paula Abdul. Oh, Paula Abdul, who's like you know, she's amazing. What's your favorite Paula Abdul song? Oh gosh, um, um, what is my favorite Paula Abdul song? It's the one where the video with the cat. <laughs> yeah. You know Isn't that? it like two steps forward? Yeah. One step back. Yeah, Opposites so, attract. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you said you were going to dance. I Well, I look, I'm I'm down. <laughs> I want to have like a maybe a dance off of some sort, some sort of dance party. <laughs> Unfortunately, that will not. Fortunately for all the listeners, you will not be able to. I could take a video. <laughs> what was the last book you read? Oh, um, Where the Crawdads Sing. Oh. Did you like it? I loved it. And I just have to be honest, though, when, you know, right now on the campaign trail with three kids and, you know, running and all that, it is an audible situation. I listen to books when I'm walking in the morning Mm -hmm. and uh, it's a beautiful it's a beautifully written story. And um, yeah, cool. I recommend it highly. What is your favorite depiction of lawyers in movies or on TV? Hands down, my cousin Vinny. Mm. I think. It's not so much the way the lawyers are depicted, but the way the practice of law is depicted. It's mm-hmm. much more um, true to life in terms of how you get evidence in and mm-hmm. where the lawyers stumble. Like that's where lawyers stumble. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have to you can't enter an, a photo into evidence until you validate it, you know, and the person. What is this picture of? And so there was just aspects of it. I remember my property professor talked about it, too, that um, it's much more accurate uh, than many other depictions. Yeah. You mean law and order is not accurate? Dun, that dun. everything happens in an hour? That would be so nice. Well, actually, when I would pick juries, I would say, like, who's a big law and order fan? You know, and they'd raise their hand. And, like, my joke would be, like, you know, law and order, you know, um, New York or SVU or, like, law and order Poughkeepsie. And they're like, hee hee. And I'm like, but no, <laughs> really, because do you think that crimes are solved in one hour by really attractive people? <laughs> and do you think there's a computer printout at the end that's going to tell you what happened? And it's a good conversation to sort of have with jurors about what's going to happen in the courtroom yeah. versus what happens on TV. You have to de- differ, you know, make a difference um, yeah. because it's, that's not how it goes. Do you hereby promise you will not blame the SFPD or Superior Court judges 100% of the time the Chronicle calls you asking about a case that's gone awry? I promise. <laughs> I pinky swear promise. <laughs> okay. You can pinky swear. Um, but I think that, you know, also when I was a prosecutor, that's that was sort of taboo. That's changed in the last few years um, because there is an idea the prosecutor as a chief elected law enforcement officer representing the people has to really take the high road. And it's, it's a commitment of mine to look at what we can do better first um, and to recognize that oftentimes judges are making decisions based on what's talked about in court. Mm-hmm. So, you know, look at yourself first before you start throwing um, blame. Yeah. And lastly, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? 
So for me, it's about bookends. It's how the day starts and ends because things can be a little crazy in the middle. So I start off with my morning walk. I'm lucky enough to live by the beach and I get to listen to my fiction. What time do you go on that walk? It depends. See, this is the first week school back. It's all messed up. It's really, it used to be, I used to be able to do it like at, um, you know, 630, which is when it's light out now. But now with the kids, um, uh, it's, it would have to be at 530 where it's still dark. So we're figuring that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then at the end of the day, uh, I love, um, I read to my two younger girls. Mm -hmm. And no matter what happens, I try to make it home to read to them. We're on the fourth Harry Potter, which also is just a massive coping strategy to listen to J.K. <laughs> Rowling's view of the world yeah. before you go to bed yeah. is great. And to get to do that as an adult is a treat. And then I talk to my eldest daughter who just started high school. Great. So I bookend my days. Whatever happens in the middle can be crazy, but I try to keep it consistent. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming today. It was good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Susie Loftus for joining me today, to King Kaufman and Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and to you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.